Welcome to the Thriving Farmer Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Kilpatrick. Our mission is to inspire, educate, and celebrate sustainable farming. We believe that you can build a profitable, sustainable farm that gives you true farm freedom. Join us as we talk to farmers, innovators, educators, and entrepreneurs to glean their top takeaways in business and life. Hey, Thriving Farmers. My guest today is Darren Babcock who was a successful corporate employee living everywhere from Oklahoma to Oregon, but life events and struggles ultimately led him to the Dallas, Texas area. After connecting with the community of Bonton through a friend, Babcock began to serve in the neighborhood. His heart broke for the marginalized and overlooked people who called Bonton home. So he decided to leave his career along with his comfortable home in uh, Fresno, Texas and moved to Bonton. Darren leads an effort for community restoration and renewal in the neighborhood for the past nine years. To date, some of those efforts have manifested into social enterprises such as Bonton Honey Company, Bonton Housing, the market at Bonton Farms, a coffee house, farmer's market, and most notably, Bonton Farms, the largest urban farm in the United States. He serves as founder and CEO. Darren's broad professional experience, coupled with his heart for serving inner city communities, brings a fresh and innovative perspective to urban transformation and renewal. Darren and his wife, Teta, live in Bonton. Darren, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's good to be here. So tell me, someone from corporate turns and in, in dives into more of a social enterprise uh, business slash just ministry. How did that start? I actually was having coffee with a friend one morning and um, all of a sudden he looked down at his watch and he said, oh, I got to go. A friend of mine was doing prison ministry and one of the guys that he met um, and had developed a relationship with inside the prison um, told him in one of their meetings, he said, I'm I'm up for parole, but I'm thinking of not going to my meeting, Mm. my hearing. And he said, gosh, why would you do that? And he said, because this is all I have. My mm. friend thought he was talking about prison, which uh, dumbfounded him, you know. Yeah. When <laughs> he said, no, I don't mean prison. I mean this, our relationship. Um, it changed my friend's life. I, I, uh, he passed away since then, but I don't know that there was a day that I remember him not telling that story about how he learned that valuable lesson about the power of relationships, like real relationships. Um, and so anyway, the guy did go to the hearing and he was paroled and he happened to be from this neighborhood called Bonton. And so my friend started coming down here to meet with him um, and he'd come down on Saturday mornings and bring a little breakfast and they'd spend time together and other people started showing up. There were other people kind of thirsty for that relationship, um, mentorship kind of thing as well. And so I got invited down through that. And uh, uh, long story short, those men changed my life. Before long, I couldn't just uh, come down here on Saturdays anymore. Um, and as you said in the beginning, left my career and sold my house and moved here so that I could be present for them and to learn. Mm, that's powerful. Yeah, I actually spent a number of years doing prison ministry when I was in upstate New York. And I, you know, it was one aspect you think you're going in to help them, but in <laughs> yeah. so many aspects, they changed my life, they changed my outlook on life, they changed understanding. Uh, just, just the system. Um, you know, I was raised very conservatively. So, you know, you look at the prison systems like, oh my gosh, can't believe how someone would end up there. But when you go in there and you meet those, those are men. And 
and, and yes, they've made some mistakes, but also it's the system that failed them. Yeah. And there's so many guys in there that just had hearts of gold. And, um, you know, you just were cheering on them to get back out and try to, and try to help them, uh, you know, make sure that they get the necessary uh, support to get their lives back to where they need to be. Absolutely. So why a farm? Uh, well, it turns out that when I started coming down here to meet with those men, they would tell us every Saturday when we'd come down, look, if, if we don't get an opportunity to work, nobody will give us an opportunity to work because of our background, we're going to wind up going back. Mm. And they didn't want to. Um, it speaks to your point. These were men that had probably, you know, they'd made mistakes. Yes, but I'm not so sure they had choices, you know, um, when your back's up against the wall, you do things that you might not be proud of sometimes. And most of the men fell into that category. And, and so um, I didn't really understand that too well, but I knew that it seemed like if they really wanted to work, they should have that opportunity. So I started working with them to get them ready for work, to see if they had what it took to be an employee. Could they show up on time and work hard through the course of a day and be a good teammate and solve problems and the things that employers would value, right? And in doing so, so many of those guys would call in sick and not be able to make it. And I later learned that Bonton, as a lot of inner city communities, are what they call a food desert. Um, and if you think about it, in a free market economy like we have in the United States, um, if you have community, entire communities of people that don't have disposable income, there's just no grocery store that can survive there. So the absence of stores, where do people get food? Um, and as a result of Bonton being a food desert for over half a century, um, we suffer from more than double the rate of cancer, stroke, heart disease, diabetes, and childhood obesity than the county we're in. In fact, men in Bonton will live 11 years less than the average lifespan of a man in the county that we're in. Wow. Uh, that seemed ridiculous. It seemed unacceptable to me that in the richest country in the history of the world, we have communities like Bonton that don't have access to food. Uh -huh. uh, so we planted a garden and man, I will tell you, um, you talked about the system. It wasn't long when we got food to grow that the city wrote us a ticket for selling vegetables. <laughs> it was against an ordinance in Dallas to have a market garden, a garden you sold things from. Yeah. Um, and so um, we fought that battle and, um, and, uh, and won. And so um, that birthed the way or created an opportunity for a farm. And what we've learned is, is food and farming farm. The act of farming is healing. It's cathartic. Um, there's something about people, especially people that have suffered, that have been broken, that feel like they are just a bundle of needs, um, that when you come to a farm and you put a delicate seed in the soil and that seed needs you every day to care for it or else it dies, that there's something about the value of being needed that creates space for people to heal and grow. Um, the animals on the farm, I can tell you story after story after story of people that had totally given up and in their interaction with the animals and how those animals need them to be cared for every day or they don't make it, that that relationship starts to heal. I have a friend that, um, that did 27 years in prison and 20 of them in solitary confinement for the longest time. He never spoke a word for months. When we met him, he wouldn't speak none of the guys that he came to the farm with out of the program, the, the halfway house program he was in had ever heard him speak. We thought that he'd lost his ability to speak from all the years in solitary. Um, 
he's sitting under the pecan tree and as the pecans start to fall, he's cracking the shells. And as he's cracking those pecan shells and throwing them on the ground, a couple of birds and squirrels start inching closer to him. And he does this every day. And before long, he's able to feed the squirrels and birds out of his hand. And he comes up to me one day and said, for the first time, the first word that came out of his mouth was, these animals are teaching me how important it is to have relationships and I don't trust you, but I want to. Wow. And you, you know, there's story after story after story like that of how farming and the act of farming and the putting interaction with soil and seeds. And there's so many metaphors for life and how to live well through the act of farming that are played out in the work every day. Um, that while we're trying to solve a serious issue of food access in an impoverished community, more than anything, a farm is a place for us to reconnect with our creator and, and with creation. Uh-huh. And in that process, people heal. Yeah, and I think it's really telling when you look at a lot of the parables that Jesus told is that so many of them were agricultural related. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's almost like he knew what he was doing, right? <laughs> Talk to us a little bit about like the scope of what you offer there. Because not only do you have the farm, and which is the largest urban farm, you said it's like 42 acres? Yes, sir. And you have the farmer's market, you have dinners, you have events, you have even a cookbook out. So you have, and it's taken you nine years to do all this? Yes, sir. I mean, when do you sleep? Um, <laughs> sparingly. <laughs> Sleep overrated. Yes. So, so talk to us. What was the early days like? A very um, organic. Uh, people would come to my house and meet on the porch, and um, um, you know, it was very raw. Um, from people coming and saying, um, you know, I'm about to be evicted, and the only way I can keep from being evicted is to sell this dope or to rob it or to go on this. Uh, they call it hitting, hitting, hit a lick, right? To go rob, uh-huh. execute a robbery, and and I don't want to do it, but I don't feel like I have a choice. And so my presence here created the opportunity for a conversation to be had about the struggle and what they desired versus what they felt like they had to do, and. And when you have a chance to talk about something before you do it, a lot of times there's an intervention that can be had and and different choices made. And I just started learning about the difficulties of of a country that was built on the premise that all men are created equal with certain unalienable rights, but have yet to ever been able to live up to that standard. And how by our failure to live up to that standard, it creates a different system for people that are born into poverty, mostly uh, minorities versus um, you know people like me that grew up with all of the hopes and dreams that you can imagine that that this great country has to offer. And when those things aren't present, life becomes something smaller and more perverted than it could be. And so through the learning of my friends, we just started learning that man uh, in Dallas, for example, half the population, 55% lives north of a highway that cuts right across the center of downtown. Uh, 45% of the population lives south, but 5% of the jobs are on the southern sector where half the population lives. Wow. Uh, those places are also food deserts. There's no jobs, means there's no income, which means there's no grocery stores. So then you have a health crisis on your hands, and then you have a poverty crisis on your hands, and then the schools are underfunded and underperforming, and so kids are not living into their potential. Um, and it creates this downward spiral. And to me, I, I, they're just the most beautiful people that live here. 
that have so much potential. And what Bonton Farms is really about is changing the system to build the infrastructure that we call them human essentials, mm-hmm. things that people need to flourish, um, opportunity to work, um, being a part of a community where you're known and belong, the ability to afford a roof over your head so that affordable housing that aligns with wages, um, access to fair credit. Here, everything is predatory, right? Um, and so we try to we try to set the balance right. And what we've seen is that when people have those opportunities, the vast majority of them, over 82% so far in our little experiment, will use those things to build a flourishing, self-sufficient life with. Mm. So what's your background around farming? Did you have any background with farming before you started Bonton Farms or is it learning on the job? I, my background was a passion. My grandfather was a farmer and I got to spend my summers on his farm working with him as, as a young person. And I, I valued the character that it instilled in the, in the farmers I knew. I valued the work ethic. I, I valued the perseverance um, the mental toughness that it takes to be a farmer yeah. to depend on the weather to cooperate for your livelihood, things out of your control. And you put everything in the palm of God's hands, right. To see whether you make it or not. And that takes a unique person to be able to do. And I admired my grandfather so much for that. But apart from that, I never learned to grow or, or do anything. When this opportunity presented itself, we tell everybody we're YouTube farmers because <laughs> We literally learned how to farm watching uh, YouTube videos. Yes. So, yeah, it's amazing what you can do if you put your mind to it. The information is there. Yeah. So what does a typical week look like for you now on the farm? Because I know it's it's grown so much and you have such a, a large team now. Yeah, well, for me, it's a little different. You know, I've become... Um, you know, the visionary leader of, of trying to cast a vision of what's possible in inner cities of, of, and, and the impact that it can have and the lives um, that, can, that can give back and be um, and can flourish and build families and work and, and buy houses as opposed to being housed in prisons or homeless shelters or recovery centers, right? How much more beautiful is it when people live those lives and that it's possible for them but we need to make an investment here that so far hasn't been made. And, um, and so I do a lot of storytelling, trying to connect the different parts of our city and our country that may not have had the opportunity to learn the way that my neighbors have been so kind to teach me. Um, because, you know, Bonton is a place, but it's also to me a metaphor for thousands of other Bontons across our country. And, uh, you know, one of the roles that I uh, relish getting to do is to be able to share our story in hopes that maybe other communities like ours can benefit from it. Um, I don't get to do the actual farming as much as I did in the beginning, but I will tell you that whenever I get tired or frustrated or lose my patience, the first thing I do is I go work on the farm and I plant something, I pull some weeds and I feed the animals and I milk some goats and Mm. I harvest some eggs and my life all of a sudden starts to make sense again. It heals Mm. me too. Yes. (laughs) So what are the different enterprises? So it sounds like you've got a wide variety of animals. Mm-hmm. Well, we, we run a small farm. We try to find niche products that people will pay a premium for. It's hard, as you know, to make money as a farmer. Um, it's really probably harder to make money as a small um, urban farm. And so we need to be creative and find ways to to grow food and to raise foods that have a high value that allow us to make that work financially. Um, 
And so we kind of employ a strategy of having an ecosystem of businesses around food production. So our farms grow the food and we grow food. Um, you know, I'll tell you a quick story. The first year we had a real farmer that kind of taught us how to plant and he's a Texas guy. So we planted probably more than half of our land in squash. Okay. We try to do everything organically. Um, and so, you know, we have, as you know, everything wants to eat a squash plant. It's got, yes. it's got powdery mildew. It's got um, squash bugs. It's got all kinds of things that want to rob those squash plants. And so we're literally out almost like man on man on every squash plant, trying to pick off every bug and protect it from, you know, whatever's trying to get at it. And you go to the farmer's market and everybody, nobody wants to pay you more than 50 cents for a squash. You're like, do you realize what it took for me to get this to you? You know, yeah. uh, at the same time, we had somebody donate some shishito pepper plants and we were selling about 15 peppers in a small bag for $5. And it didn't take me long to tell everybody to rip the squash plants out and, and plant more shishito peppers. And so we've just learned how to plant things that have high value that, that are regenerative, meaning um, not one and done. We don't plant a lot of things, um, you know, like we'll plant leaf lettuce instead of head lettuce. So that yes. we get more production out of it. And you just, we've just had to learn to be smart, but then we've created an ecosystem of businesses. We have a food preservatory so that anything that we don't sell right away goes to be preserved and you can take figs and turn them into fig jelly. And those figs may have sold for $3, but that fig jelly will sell for 10. Mm. So it almost raises the, the value up by moving it up uh, into something. So we have a preservatory where we make pickles, all kinds of pickled products and jellies and jams. We have a restaurant and cafe where we do farm to table meals. Um, we have a farmer's market that's in-house farmer's market that's open six days a week. Um, you know, most farmers markets are a bit cumbersome. People have to yeah. go from church parking lot on a Saturday and Sunday within a certain time frame and hope that the farmer's there and has what they want. Um, so we're doing kind of a test where our farmers market's in a building and it's open six days a week. So it's more convenient. And so far, that's been uh, a really good related uh, business to help our farms succeed as well. Very cool. And so then the honey company, is that something where you have uh, hives and then you just process all the honey through your different projects? Yes. So we, um, you know, the first thing we, we started with the jobs with these men is, is I kept saying, look, if you'll work with me to clean up our neighborhood, um, I'll go with you on job interviews once you prove to me that you're dependable, right? Uh -huh. you work hard. And uh, we started doing that. And time after time, people started call, uh, calling us back saying, look, we'd love to give you an opportunity, but our HR department or our legal team with their background, we just can't, we just can't do it. Yeah. And so one night we had a Bible study at my house and the, and uh, the guys were saying, look, if we don't, if we, nobody will give us an opportunity to work, we're going to have to go back and do what we do. Yeah. And about two days later, one of my friends called me and he said, what do they mean by that? And I said, well, their hustles are they, they prostitute women, they'll, they'll sell dope or they, or they'll rob people. Like if, if you yeah. can't work in the, in the, in the economic system, that's, that's what they do to survive. And he's like, man, that's devastating. And I was like, I know. Right. And a couple of days later, he called me, he said, man, I can't sleep. And he's like, here's the deal. I own nature Nate's honey company, the largest honey company in the United States. And a guy gave me my start by teaching me how to start one hive. And so if you think the guys will work with bees, I'm willing to fund the startup of a honey company. I'll pay every penny of what it costs for two years. 
but I'll do none of the work. So whether it works or not, it's totally on your shoulders, but I will fund it if they'll work with bees. Do you think they'll work with bees? I'm like, I don't know. Let me ask them. I said, hey guys, this is Nathan. He wants us to help start a honey company. Will you work with bees? And they're like, hell no, we won't work with bees. (laughs) You've been shot three times. Like, why, why, why are you scared of bees? So after a bit of a conversation, we decided that we weren't too scared of bees anyway. And we we, we, I think the first year got 30 hives Okay. and, um, you know, sold everything that we've grown every year since then. So, so with building the farm, with kind of this whole journey, what do you feel has been the hardest part of it for you? Oh man. Um, you know, uh, for me, um, a big part, the hardest part is that the, you know, we, we are a farm, but we um, say the word farm means to grow and cultivate. And so for us, the primary farming we do is growing and cultivating people. Mm-hmm. Uh, we just believe that the vehicle of actual farms of growing food and raising farm animals is the best way to help grow people. Um, as I mentioned in the beginning, it's healing and cathartic um, and um, allows us to, to help restore people that the rest of the world's given up on. Um, and when you have people that you care about that don't make it, um, that's probably the hardest part, um, of having Mm -hmm. to endure that. And unfortunately not all of them do make it. Um, I think secondly, the, you know, trying to figure out how to make it work financially, um, you know, farming is just a hard business in the United Uh States, um, you know, our food costs are not representative of really what it takes to grow food. Um, you know, we tried to raise pasture raised chickens because um, we think that raising chickens uh, the right way um, was more dignified and better. And so we tried to do that, but it cost us maybe 10 or $12 to raise a chicken. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and you can go have them cooked for you at Sam's uh, for $4. It just doesn't make sense. And so how do we create value in a way that makes the farm actually um, where it can sustain over years um, has been a real big challenge. Um, so let's, let's dive into that a bit because I know people love your story and they'd love to do something like you have, like we're here, we're right outside of Dayton, Ohio, mm-hmm. um, Trotwood area, which is, you know, that's the area you don't go into after dark. Right. And those areas need something like this. I mean, I drove up there the other day because I had to get a starter repaired for a tractor and you're passing row and after row of boarded up houses and you just, your heart breaks for those communities. Yeah. Um, but funding something like this is very challenging. How do you, um, I mean, obviously you have the products, you talked about that side of things, mm-hmm. but I noticed you also are partnering with a lot of different organizations. Right. Well, we, we have a philosophy. So there's a lot of money um, that's spent philanthropically, right? Yeah. There's a lot of people that try to take their wealth and redistribute it in a way that helps other people. Um, and, and to be honest with you, um, we think that a lot of that is, is not done wisely. Um, so we have a little bit of a different approach is that we, we have this um, belief and strategy that if we can leverage philanthropy to start things, businesses, debt-free, that those businesses, if we can run them well, become self-sustaining, that, that we leverage those philanthropic dollars so that we can start things, but we don't become dependent on it. Um, uh-huh. And so um, that's been our niche is to make a plea of what this work will do and how it will impact these communities for the better and how it will actually solve problems 
right? We're not putting band-aids on things. When you, when you start a farm in an inner city community and all of a sudden it was a food desert and now it's no longer a food desert, that is a problem solved. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, so it's not a band-aid where you're going to keep coming back and saying, you know, I need, to sa- I need more money to feed the same people because they're not able to feed themselves. We're saying, no, help us feed ourselves. Like help us get started so we can feed ourselves. We don't want to be dependent on you. Um, we want to be able to stand on our own two feet. We want to have the dignity of, of being able to provide for ourselves. And so that's the model we've used and it's worked for us. And I think it's because it actually solves problems so that you're not having to go back year after year and ask for money for the same thing over and over. I think that it can be done and replicated in places like Dayton and the community uh-huh. that you mentioned earlier. All right. So what I'm, and I looked at your websites uh, in detail. So it's to me, I'm kind of seeing your model is you started, you got a, a core a momentum going. Um, you built a brand which attracts uh, people to it. I mean, you have a beautiful brand. You've done a fabulous job of branding it. And then what you've done is you've said, okay, we see this opportunity in this community to do a coffee house. So then we get some funding to help that get going. And mm-hmm. then we spin that off as its own little thing that's creating jobs, that's you know bringing in income, that's providing a, a great service for the community. Yeah. So if you think about it, um, what we we're, we're creating is an ecosystem around one main thing, which is food production in the farm. Um, and that ecosystem, for example, in Bonton now, um, we have these six businesses that pay, we've created 45 new jobs that didn't exist six years ago. We'll pay over $1.2 million in wages back to our neighborhood. Wow. Um, those people now are working all day. And if you, if you farm before, you don't go home from farming rested. You're tired at the end of the day. So they're now paying people to mow their yards and they're paying people to cut their hair and their barbershops opening and landscape businesses opening. And so that seed, that economic mm. seed is starting to germinate and create more businesses. So there's this economic propagation, right? It's growing Um, but it needed a catalyst. And for us, the farm in the inner city was the catalyst to start all these other things. And a lot of these businesses now, we don't have anything to do with. It's just like um, we helped a guy get his uh, barber license, but he had to go get a job outside the community. But now there's these people with jobs and they want to get a haircut here without going there. So we started a barbershop in the neighborhood and there's, there's a line waiting to get in. That's awesome. If you, if there was, let's say a magic reset button, if you could go back nine years ago, what would you have done differently as you started this? You know, I, I have to tell you that we've made a lot of little, we've always said, let's press the boundaries and go hard and not be afraid to fail. And we failed in almost every way, um, but we failed forward. You know, and we listened to the community so that we didn't do anything that would create distrust or cause what I call fatal failure, you know, a failure that you can't recover from. Um, and so I think the thing that we, we try to emphasize when you, go, when you work with a community like Bonton is, to, is we have to be really good listeners. You can't go into a neighborhood with an idea that you have any ideas have how to fix their problems or to fix them. Uh, it simply will not work. And, um, and for the most part, we've gotten that right. But if there's one thing I, I would change, it would be to be a better listener. We could have avoided some mistakes and some, and some problems that we cause people that we care deeply about by simply being better listeners. Mm-hmm. So that open communication. 
yeah, it's hard. It's hard to put yourself in someone else's shoes unless you've actually walked in it. So you may think, you know, yeah. but we, we actually don't. And it's just so critical to listen, to truly understand how things affect the people that we want to serve. If we're, if we are still talking about this inner city context, um, listening, I can't emphasize that enough. And it's the one thing I would say I would try to be better at um, and, every day. And so let's talk about how do you listen better? Um, well, I think that for me, we've done a pretty good job of listening the first time. But when you hear an answer, doesn't mean you understand it. Okay. So for me, it's the question behind the question. That's what we need to get better at. So it's easy to come to a neighborhood and the guys say, look, if we don't get an opportunity to work, um, we're going to go back to doing the things that are destructive and we yeah. don't want to do that. So we started helping people get jobs, but I didn't ask more questions. I didn't understand the demographics of our city that 95% of the jobs are on the other side of town. I didn't understand that the only way to get to the other side of the town was um, in, in Dallas, the transportation system was not built to get people from the inner city into the city. It was built to get people from the suburbs into the city. And so for us to go to those jobs, it's so cumbersome, three or four hours each way with all the different um, transitions that you have to take to get there. I didn't understand that the things that are here are predatory. Um, so the housing market here is not controlled by normal housing folks. The housing market's controlled by slumlords that are here to take advantage of people that are impoverished. I didn't understand that there is no formal banking system here. The banking system are payday loans, title loans, and pawn shops. Again, things that are predatory wow. uh, for the people that called us home. I didn't understand that if you want to get a car here, the very first guy we helped get a job came to me after three weeks. He was really prepared and he was an incredibly hard worker. One of the hardest workers I've ever met. I knew he was going to be successful. And three weeks in, he comes and says, man, I'm about, to, I'm afraid I'm going to lose my job. And I was like, what, why? You're, you, you were ready. I, I, I don't understand. And he said, no, I, I, I had to tell him on my application that I had a way to get there and I didn't. So when I got the job, when they called me and told me they hired me, I had to go buy a car and they're trying to repo it. I'm like, I don't understand why would, it hadn't even been a month yet. And he said, no, I pay weekly. I was like, I've never heard of weekly car payments. He was paying $150 a week for a 14 year old car. He paid $8,500 for a car that had a $3,400 Kelly blue book value. Wow. And so um, understanding the layers of complexity to actually do this the right way, it's more than just growing food. It's more than just creating jobs. It's, it's, it's the analogy we use is the same as a seed. If you, if you take a seed out of a packet and you wedge it in a crack in a table and put it in front of a window and you wet a cotton ball so it's got water and sunlight, and let's say that, carrot, that seed is a carrot seed, when would you be able to come back and harvest a carrot? Hmm. It's like never because it also needs soil, right? So there's, there's certain things that are an ecosystem. They lean on each other. It's a house of cards and we're more complicated, just like seeds are. We're more complicated. We need several things that when all, when all of those things are present, then we germinate and become what we were created to be. But if one of those things is absent, if you take the sun away, if you take the water away, if you take the soil away, that seed that was created with all the potential to become a, a carrot will never become a carrot because one thing that it needed was absent. And I think that's one of the things that we do really wrong for the most part when we serve people is we assume that because someone's homeless that they just need a home. Um, that's akin to saying that a seed just needs to be planted in dirt and it will grow. 
Uh, no, it needs to be nurtured. It needs, it needs sunlight, the right amount of sunlight, needs the right temperatures, needs the right pH, <laughs> needs the right yeah. amount of water. And when we do that, then we, that seed will almost assuredly become what it was created to be. And likewise, when people have what they need to build a life, they will almost assuredly come what they were created to be. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. With that, I'd like to stop here and take a quick break. In a minute, we'll be back with Darren from Bonton Farms. Hey, Thriving Farmers, have you checked us out on YouTube lately? We have a bunch of new content there, including a few rants by me. I uh, want to tell you, you don't want to miss them. Um, I actually go rant about you know some of the problems I see in our space and some of the challenges I see farmers uh, facing. So go check that out. We've got instructional videos over there as well. Talk about setting up our new farm here in Ohio and all the steps we're going to do that, as well as just tutorials and tips on best practices for all sorts of things on the farm. So go ahead, check over at Growing Farmers on YouTube and see the new content we put together for you. Hey, Thriving Farmers, we're back with Darren from Bonton Farms. Darren, before we went to break, we talked about, you know, the the kind of the characteristics or the um, opportunities which allow people to thrive, you know, use the, the aspect of a, you know, putting a carrot seed on a table and expecting a carrot from it. You have a, a, a quote on your, on your website that's like, that says, investing in the soil yields healthy plants, investing in the soul yields healthy people. Talk to us about it. You know, it's not just giving people an opportunity, but it's also going down to the soul level to get people actually um, to understand them as a person. Yeah, I think, you know, as I was mentioning earlier, people are, are pretty simple, um, but we also are a little complicated. We have a, we have a bundle of needs and, and when those needs are met, um, people do well. I, I would ask if I could just kind of regress and tell you a story that I learned from, from uh, one of our participants on the farm. This is a young lady that grew up in our neighborhood. Um, she had a really hard life. Her father was incarcerated and uh, she had three sisters. Um, so grew up to a single mother and three sisters in a really rough inner city neighborhood. Um, was hard and they knew when their dad came home, everything was gonna be okay. And he came home angry and broken and abused the mother and molested the daughters. And this one girl in particular, had lost all self-confidence and the only way she felt good about herself was when men showed her affection. So she winds up being turned out into prostitution and hates herself for that. So she's shooting dope and goes to prison and then winds up at Bonton Farms. And we're getting ready. We'd just grown all year. And because we can't let our land sit fallow, we have to use compost to restore our soil between seasons. And I'd had three tractor trailer loads of compost delivered and it had rained for three days. And we were going to have to do the hard job of taking that a shovel load at a time into wheelbarrows and wheeling it into the garden. And I didn't want them having to do that without understanding why. So I gathered them all around and I handed out packets of seeds. And I said, look, all that food we grew all year, it didn't come without a cost. It takes things from the soil. And if we don't put it back, we're going to wind up bankrupt. So we're going to have to do this really hard job. And I explained the job ahead. And I said, and when we're done, we're going to take those packets of seeds and we're going to put the seeds in that restored soil. And before long, those seeds will look like the picture on the packet you took it out of. And this particular lady I was referring to looked at me and she said, I think your seeds are dead. <laughs> I laughed and said, why would you say that? And she said, because they're shriveled up and dry. That's what dead things look like. I'm like, well, that's true. But I promise you, if you take that seed and if you put it in this good soil, and if you position it where the sun passes overhead and you give it the right amount of water, this seed will almost assuredly become what it was created to be. 
and she started crying. Now I'm a dude, so I think we're still talking about dirt. I have no idea what I've done that has hurt her feelings, but I asked, I said, would you please tell me what, what, what did I say? And she said, look, we're just like those seeds. I'm like, I don't understand what you're saying. And she said, well, we grew up in Bonton. Like, what was our sun, soil, and water? And it occurred to me that there are certain things that people are created to be and to do and to have. And when those things are present, just like that seed, people flourish. We're created to work. You know, um, we, we are made to derive a portion of our dignity and our value and our purpose through our work. Not all of it, but a portion of it. We're made to be in community with one another where we're known and belong. You know, we're, 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 none of us, to my knowledge, have fur. We're not made to be outdoors. We're, we're made to, to live with a roof over our head, to be sheltered. Um, and it turns out we started asking questions. What is sun, soil, and water to people? Like, how does that relate to us? Or does it? And we found out there's a science called the social determinants of health. And basically what that says is that when people have shelter that feels enough like home where they're able to get adequate rest, when they're able to participate in meaningful work, when they're a part of a community where they know and belong, where they feel safe and secure, and when they have access to green spaces, they suffer from like 60% less incidents of mental illness and depression. They're more productive and we live longer. Huh. And where's, 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 where is that, where's that from? Um, it's actually a science. If you Google the science of the social determinant, the science of social determinants of health and well-being, okay, uh, it'll come up. And the interesting thing as a, as a Christian man, um, that aligns with, with what I'm taught, you know, that man is created to work, that we're created to be in community, um, that we're not supposed to do this alone. Um, that we're better when we're together than when we're apart. Um, you know, that we're made to be fed and to need food and to be nourished spiritually and, and physically. Um, that we're made to, be she- to live in shelter, um, mm. to need and have shelter. And when those things are present, people use those things to build a life with. Mm. Yeah, I want to make sure we, we link to that below this episode so people can see that because that is so key. You've absolutely nailed it, that there is these, these, these aspects that when people don't have access to them, we just see that breakdown. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Now you have a director of discipleship on mm-hmm. your team. Talk to us a little bit about what their role is with you. Oh man, it's the most beautiful and hardest job ever in the history of the world because we, it starts with the day somebody shows up here and says, I need help. Um, we've never recruited anybody. Everybody comes to be a part and participate at their, at their own doing. But, but the people show up at Bonton Farms when they've, when they've given up. And so our directors of discipleship are people that begin on the journey of, of identifying where they are, why they showed up, what they need, who they are, what their gifts are, and how our whole purpose of Bonton Farms is to see the full potential in every person we serve fully manifest. Mm. So their job is to take somebody that shows up as the lady I mentioned earlier that had been um, abandoned by and abused by her father, um, had been turned out into prostitution, had become a a dope addict and had been incarcerated. And now she shows up saying, I I don't know how to rebuild my life. And that uh, those, those on our team that are directors of discipleship start with the first step and walk them all the way through until we don't stop until we feel like the full potential that's in them is, is being realized. Mm. 
And so that looks different with every person, right? I have a I have this young man, uh, not young man, but this guy that's been incarcerated for 27 years, 20 years of it in solitary confinement, and he's learning how to speak again. But he's been out of this world for 27 years. So if you think about how the world's changed in 27 years, he doesn't know how to use any technology, doesn't know what the internet is or how it works. Um, things have changed. And so we have to walk with them through that assimilation into a new world. We have ladies that have suffered domestic abuse that have not been able to spend money or use money. So they don't know how to bank or count change. Um, and so for us to see their full potential manifest, we have to go back and train things that have been robbed through their um, suffering and their difficult experiences. And it's all of that. And it's different for every person. Um, and then all of a sudden, as they start to heal and grow, there's, the there's a glimmer of hope that happens where they start to dream. And that's where we st get to start finding out who they were created to be. You know, what, what, what gifts do you have? What talents do you have that are unique to you? Um, what passions do you have that, what lights your fire that doesn't light mine, right? And to start to learn about them in a way that we can start to point them in a direction to provide the training, education, and experience so that they can grow into um, utilizing those gifts and skill sets that God created in them from the beginning. Mm. So does a part of this all happen around the farm or are there different opportunities for them through the different businesses? Oh, that's how, I mean, the businesses are so important because as I mentioned earlier, we are created to work, right? Yeah. So everybody works at our farm from day one. Um, and so it's a part of their uh, being dignified, right? They don't just come and get all these things. They come and they get an opportunity to work and earn. And with their earnings, they can get shelter. They can buy food. They can start to provide for themselves. And that's a very foundational part of it because most of the people we serve um, have been through really difficult things, those job opportunities and the ability to learn how to work with kind of an attitude of grace and mercy that they need to be able to make a mistake without getting fired. Mm -hmm. um, it's really important that we create those businesses and jobs so that they have a safe environment to kind of learn to work um, and build a resume and to start to see what their gifts and talents are. Um, and so, yeah, the businesses that we have are very, very integral for their, for their journey. Mm. So let's talk about your marketing, because obviously all of this comes down to your producing products. Where did you start with selling the products from the farms? We started at just a farmer's market outdoor under a little canopy. Um, you know, every Saturday and Sunday after farming all week, we would go sit out in the hot sun and try to peddle what we had. Um, I got really frustrated with it because we worked so hard to grow that food and to do it the right way. Um, and then you get to the farmer's market and if this if you don't get your tent in the right place and the sun gets on it your food wilts and you know before you sell half of it the quality of it's degraded and um days that the weather didn't cooperate and you took your harvest out there and then all of a sudden it was too cold or too rainy or there's a soccer tournament in town and people didn't come out to buy and you've lost all that food that you worked so hard to grow and that's really what inspired us to start the farmer's market um it was hard to sell our food um, for what it was worth while it was still at its peak um, flavor and quality um, through the methods that we had. And so we found some restaurants that have really high value for locally sourced food right out of the ground as fresh as they can get it. 
and we focused on trying to cater to their needs. We started our own farmers market so that we could have a we could have the controls we needed to see that our food was harvested just in time and that it was uh, the integrity and quality of it was intact before it hit the market. And then we learned that it doesn't always work out our way. And so we started a preservatory that anything that didn't quite hit it at its peak can be canned and pickled and preserved and turned into a higher value product that way. And so we learn as we go, um, but that's how we've kind of started and learned how to do that. Okay. Now I also see that you're doing some very strategic partnerships. Like you have a, your honey goes into a local uh, ice cream. Yeah. Well, we, 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 uh, we make uh, products out of our, it's, it's part of marketing, right? Hell to build the brand. So yes. instead of just making honey butter ice cream, we make Bonton honey butter ice cream. When we use our, our honey to make it, we use our goat milk um, to make ice cream. And so all of that stuff goes into making our products both highly fresh and unique um, and creates demand. We got voted best ice cream in Dallas last year for doing that. Oh, wow. And we have a goat milk latte that we sell out of our coffee shop that is our number one producer or number one seller in the coffee house as well. So with those, do you have to have that all, um, is it have to be all pasteurized, the milk? We do not. We do not pasteurize anything. All of it has to be sold directly from the farm. Okay. Um, you know, we can't do it. Uh, you know, I can't sell milk to restaurants or something offsite. If you want to buy the milk, you have to come buy it straight from the farm. Okay. But that actually makes sure that you're getting more of the retail dollar, but also pulling people back to the farm so they can experience Bonton. Correct. Very cool. So with your, do you still do any farmer's markets offsite or is everything now on site? We, we do participate in the Dallas Farmers Market, um, and, we, and we participate in our own uh, that I mentioned was open six days a week. We do both. Okay. And so the Farmers Market in Dallas is probably more about now just getting the word out there. Yeah. And it's a different clientele. Um, and it's a different clientele. And so the more that we can get our brand out there and help tell the story of what we're doing, it builds momentum. So we participate in both. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What would you say is when working with new farmers, I know that you've been around for a number of years now, what kind of advice would you give the new farmers as they're getting started? Find trusted advisors. You know, I, I heard somebody um, may have been Joel Salatin or one of the, one of the trusted advisors I've learned to listen to um, in learning to farm. He said, you know, if you're an accountant, you get a, you get to learn the experience of, accounting every time you enter an invoice and every month you get this you you know you get this uh accumulation of your work when you get to issue financials every month you get to do that but as a farmer you only have one time a year where you get to learn how to grow tomatoes so Mm. it takes 30 years to get 30 experiences of how you can do that and so farming is one of these unique things where we need to glean um, intelligence and information for those that have done it before us and finding people that you trust that can, that can counsel you on all the experience and wisdom that they've gained is invaluable. You know, I think the average age of our farmer in America right now is in the mid sixties, if I'm not mistaken. And, and so, um, gleaning the information from the wisdom that, that the farmers that have gone before us, um, have to offer before we don't have them around to, to share that is, is critical. Yeah, absolutely. Now, when you started as you were on the journey, was there ever a time that you were like, this isn't going to work and you thought about giving up? No, no. Okay. 
And it was because of the vision you had for it. Yeah, I think that um, I'm not smart enough to quit. Um, you know, I, I just have a, a God-given drive to keep persevering. Um, and I'm thankful for that. And, and um, you know, outside of, you know, learning from mistakes like the squash, you know, finding, finding ways to win, finding ways to um, be relevant, finding ways to be present in people's minds, finding ways to create things of value that people will pay for. Um, to me, that's fun. And we've not always gotten it right, but it's the process of learning the failing forward that I mentioned earlier that's so important, but never once would it ever enter my mind that we wouldn't make it. Um, certainly we've had to make adjustments or we would have failed. Um, but to me, that's the fun, that's the fun part is finding, applying your brain to find a way to overcome the challenges. Um, if it was easy, everybody could do it. Absolutely. If you could pick one, what would be your favorite farming tool? Hmm. Favorite farming tool. I mean, the trusty old hoe is hard to beat. Okay. <laughs> you can do a lot with it. Um, yeah. Now, how big is your actual, the, like the, the vegetable gardens part of your business? Uh, we have, um, right now we have, um, about our first farm has about, um, three quarters of an acre vegetable garden. Um, the original one was just a vacant lot next to my house. That's about a third of an acre. Okay. Um, and then on the 40 acre farm that we have, we have, um, about nine acres in vegetable production. And then the rest, we have a really robust uh, egg production business. We have almost 700 chickens. Okay. Um, and then we have milking goats, as I mentioned, and uh, we have a mangalitsa pork, which yes. is a, a unique pork breed that we found has a niche market here that people are willing to pay a little more for. Um, and we've been doing that for several years successfully. And then more for um, lawnmowers for the parts of our farm that are in pasture, we have Scottish Highland cattle. Yeah, I noticed that. I mean, it sounds like they're a little bit uh, far afield from where they're originally from. <laughs> yes, they, they don't like the Dallas summers, I'll tell you that. <laughs> so how do you deal with that? Do you have to brush them out kind of uh, so they can survive it or just keep giving them good shade? Yeah, we have some tree groves that are in low-lying areas that that flood. So um, they like to lay in the kind of the muddy area. And even when there's not water there, um, the, the soil never really dries out. Mm. So they can cake their bodies with that mud and it gives them a bit of insulation. Um, gotcha. And in the summers, they kind of stay in those low lying um, tree grove areas um, to try to stay cool. Very cool. Where can people find out more about you and your work? Uh, you can follow us at uh, on Facebook at Bonton Farms or Instagram or at our website at bontonfarms.org. And there is a great video that I think is it uh, Frigidaire or some one of the, a company did on you guys. Yeah, um, Wolf and uh, uh, Sub Zero. Sub Zero. Okay. Did a video on YouTube. So if you go to YouTube and type in Bonton Farms, there's a bunch of really good videos. We've been fortunate. Um, farms in a city, um, are focal points, right? They're visual. Absolutely. They're just beautiful and not something that you normally see. So we have the benefit of having a lot of videographers and photographers come out 
to get this unique perspective of farms in a city. And we've benefited from that. And a lot of people that are gifted to capture the images visually and to have the gift of telling the story have made videos. And most of those can be found on YouTube. Very cool. Is there a question you wish I'd asked that I haven't? I think you've been very thorough. Thank you so much. You did your research. <laughs> well, I, I was really fascinated by what you're doing, and especially being an urban farm, as we're building one here in Ohio, I'm always looking for other places to model. And yeah. uh, I thought I was, I said earlier, I thought I was doing good by being eight acres in the city, but now you're beating me with 42. So uh, eight acres is great. <laughs> is that all vegetable production? Um, it will be. So we have about an acre and a half of support area, which is our house and the barnyard. And then we have about six and a half acres of actually production area, which will be um, heavily used and with, with a bunch of greenhouses and uh, just field production spaces. So, yeah. Great. Do you do your own compost? We actually are. So um, we actually, as actually, as we were meeting, I could watch the trucks line up to dump leaves. So we, we were working oh. with the, yeah, the local uh, city to take all their leaf, as many as they'll give me. And so they're literally now have this big long windrow that they put in place and we'll be turning that and creating that as the food soil. I'll tell you, it's one of the funniest things I, t I get a, a kick and sometimes just laugh at myself at the things that I find value in. <laughs> I make my wife drive at this time of year. I make my wife drive me up to the wealthy neighborhoods that have the old tree lined streets. Yep. And they have the landscapers come out and bag all their leaves for them and set them out. And we pull up in a pickup and I jump out and I throw their bags of leaves in the truck. And oftentimes you can see them looking out of their windows. Like I think they're stealing from us. No, they're just taking our leaves. <laughs> um, yes. Yeah, it's, and then the Christmas trees that we uh, that we get the untreated ones that we get because the goats love the the pine needles and oh yeah, um, yeah it's just the th I buy alpaca poop from people and horse manure from horse stalls and yeah <laughs> well it's that, things that I find value in it's the carbon and it's one of yeah. those things is because we're running a soil focused system on our farms, we want as much carbon as possible. So wood chips, leaves, even grass clippings, if you know they're not been sprayed, those yeah. are so important and uh, something we, we kind of go out of our way to find. Absolutely. So, well, Darren, thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciate it. No, people are absolutely going to love this episode. And um, it's a little bit different, as I said earlier, than what we normally air because we're more focused on the production side. But I believe this is something that's so important in our food system. And you know, it's, it's healing people because we talk about so much about, you know, we were regenerative farmers because we're trying to heal the land and we're trying to heal people through the food, but I think we're also healing people through the experiences. And that's what your farm has done so beautifully. And I'm, I'm actually, you know, just uh, really amazed and thank you so much for coming on. My pleasure. Thank you. Looking to start or grow your farm business. You need a compelling farm plan that you can share with investors, convince your significant other with, or just to give yourself peace of mind. We have created a new program called the Start Your Farm Intensive. In it, you'll learn how to develop your farm idea to make sure you take all the factors into consideration for your context and your climate. You'll learn how to craft a one-page business plan that helps clearly define your target customer and lay out the necessary characteristics of your business. You will understand the three financial documents that every farm needs to fill out to make sure you are making money. And we'll give you all 
all that as templates too. So you have the templates to fill out for your farm business. We'll also go through funding. So where to go for funding for the various stages and parts of your business. Starting a farm is hard. Starting a farm without a proven plan is almost impossible. Join us today. Go to growingfarmers.com forward slash start for more information. Now, what did past students have to say? Corey says, the exercises and spreadsheets helped me make the learning process easier and more real. Jenna says, I gained the support system and resources I needed for when I'm ready for the next step. And finally, the worksheets make you think out every aspect of the business step by step. Go ahead, join us today, growingfarmers.com forward slash start. Hey, Thriving Farmers. Next week on the podcast, I will be talking to Ian Tolhurst, who is also known as Tully, and he has been at the forefront of the UK organic farming movement for over 40 years. He's got a wealth of experience. Um, we talk all things farming, uh, the biological activity, how they have been farming without animal inputs on their farm, and how that works. And uh, so it's a fascinating interview. It's one that will be absolutely a treat to hear. Um, we've been trying to get him on for a while, and it finally was able to work out to schedule time for him. So again, join us next week as we talk to Ian Tolhurst from the UK. So there you have it, another episode in the books. So I'd love if you would hop on over to iTunes and leave us a rating and a review. Those mean everything to us. We love to hear what you're thinking. If you have a podcast guest that you can recommend, please pop on over to the Thriving Farmer podcast website and leave us a review. That's thrivingfarmerpodcast.com.